As you can see on screen, um, we are in the third week of our series entitled Tough Talk, which is focused on the hard sayings of Jesus found in the, the Gospels. And uh, as I briefly mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are two sorts of hard sayings. There are those hard sayings which are hard to understand. And uh, I know that you have heard me say this before, that um, we are separated from the Bible days by 2,000 years and 2,000 miles. Um, and the Bible that we have in our hands is an ancient book, but it's also an ancient Middle Eastern book. And it's not always easy for us 21st century Christians, Western Christians, to understand fully the culture and the times. Conversely, there is a second type of hard saying in the Bible, and that is those sayings of Jesus which are particularly easy to understand, but hard to put into practice, very, very difficult. And our reading this morning we have some sayings of Jesus that fit into very, very much both camps. They're both difficult to understand. And once we've managed to just about get there in our understanding, they're then difficult to put into practice. Tough talk. This is hard stuff, isn't it? But it's good stuff. So if you have your Bibles there, um, we're turning this morning to Luke chapter 9. I'll put the words also on screen for us. Luke 9 verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and the birds of the air uh, and the birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Hey, we're in for a good morning, aren't we? <laughs> now, at first value, we might be quite put off by the apparent harshness of Jesus. You know, this isn't the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, with a child on his lap and a lamb at his feet, as very often Christian uh, children's storybooks depict. But this kind of Jesus saying these things is a more radical, a revolutionary, would you have it, speaking of another kingdom. And in this account, Jesus speaks to three potential would-be followers. And he challenges them on what it means truly to be a follower of him in this world. So let's meet, first of all, man number one. Candidate number one. Verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Trying to put yourself in the place of this guy, um, for me, this man, for him to say that, I would guess that he must have heard Jesus teach on a number of occasions. He must have seen Jesus perhaps perform miracles or healings firsthand. To say, I will follow you wherever you go, 
was, I believe, the climax of a growing conviction about Jesus over a period of weeks and months. This was no spur-of-the-moment decision. Again, it's always good when you're reading Scripture, rather than just to read it blandly and not to consider what's going on, to try and put yourself in the shoes of those in this situation. And this week I was trying to put myself in the shoes of the disciples, hearing this guy coming along, saying to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I love a good testimony, and I love it when we hold baptism services here, and we hear those great testimonies. Actually, the testimonies for me are better than even the baptism itself. To hear oh, a great story of someone who's come from darkness into light, their lives were hopeless, but now they're filled with hope. They're a trophy of God's grace. And sometimes I am fighting back the tears as I am listening to those magnificent stories. Hardly able to contain myself. And I just wonder whether the disciples were a little bit like that when they heard this guy coming along. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. Well, if the disciples were overjoyed at the man's devotion, their ecstasy was uh, quite short-lived. Because Jesus then turns to the man and says, Foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I can just imagine Simon Peter just holding his head. Oh no, Jesus. What did he say that for? I can imagine the disciples just murmuring amongst themselves. We are trying to get people into the kingdom. Not prevent them. We are trying to make it easy for them to believe and accept Jesus. Not place obstacles in their way. You see, in essence, Jesus was saying to this man, before you commit to following me, have you thought it through? Have you considered the cost? Do you really think that you're up to it? On another occasion, Jesus told a parable. He told a parable of four different soils which represent four different kinds of response to his message. And amongst one of those seeds, it fell uh, on, on rocky places. That doesn't mean uh, in an area with just rocks over the place, but in a, uh, it looked as if it was good ground, but underneath was a shelf of rock. And in due, the course of time, the, the plant sprang up out of the soil, but the roots were prevented from going down into the soil, and the plant was scorched and withered in the sun. And Jesus said that this, pers this um, represented the person who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but when trouble or persecution come along, he quickly falls away because he has no root. Now, this guy it appears, witnessed the excitement, the adventure, the benefits, the blessings, but had not counted the cost, the commitment, and the sacrifice. He might have been well inspired by the healings and the miracles. He might have been spellbound by Jesus' teaching. He might have been enthralled by the authority that Jesus had. But Jesus reminded him, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus was a first century itinerant rabbi who went from town to town and to follow him wherever he went meant hardship. 
Uh, it was never going to be comfortable. It was not going to be easy. They weren't going to be staying in the best hotels and having room service. The religious authorities were also antagonized by Jesus and his followers. So therefore, there was going to also be persecution. It would appear from our reading of the New Testament that Jesus himself had few possessions. He borrowed a stable to be born in. He borrowed a place to live in. A boat to teach from. He borrowed a coin for an illustration. He borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem upon. And he borrowed a tomb to be buried in. Although he didn't need that for very long. Jesus essentially was telling this guy, look, I want you to count the cost. And to follow Jesus in Tamworth in 2019 might not mean sleeping in the open air with a bunch of sweaty guys, but the principle is the same. And Jesus would instruct us all also to count the cost. You see, Christianity is far more than just saying a sinner's prayer and getting your ticket for heaven. Christianity is far more than just joining a Sunday club for those who are religiously inclined and coming to a place of worship on a Sunday morning to sing some songs and listen to a guy at the front. Jesus taught that being a Christian was to walk through the narrow gate and on the narrow pathway. In contemporary, contemporary language, that means a Christian is called by Jesus to go against the flow of society, which is never easy, standing up for truth, for not compromising our faith when the pressure is turned on. It means going very often against popular opinion. This is good stuff, isn't it? Not many are men so far. Okay. Jesus had more than that to say. Go on a few chapters into Luke chapter 14. Jesus said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You've heard me quote uh, on other occasions uh, from the frontier. Uh, a gentleman <coughs> by the name of uh, John Stott. John Stott was a leading evangelical in the Anglican Church, known worldwide, a great, uh, great teacher. And in one of his books, uh, he wrote this, and I'm going to put the, um, a, a quote of his on screen, and uh, if you don't get a chance to write it down, don't worry, I'll also put it in the notes uh, which accompany the podcast. So this is what he says. Gosh, if you can see that. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. 
in countries so in, in countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their conveniences. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Ouch. Double ouch. Triple ouch. Oh, my word. That begs the question, doesn't it, for us all here this morning, whether our Christianity is respectable or whether our Christianity is on times uncomfortable. Is our religion a soft cushion for life's trials? We thank God that on times we need that. But if all of our Christian faith is that, then I don't think that we are following the faith of Jesus. Someone once said, yes, it was Martin Luther, the, the great um, German Augustinian monk who was a catalyst for the Protestant Reformation in the uh, 15th century, 16th century. He said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing. Uh, sorry, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. How many of you have come across a guy called Adoniram Judson? No? I'm surprised. Okay, well, this is the fella. He lived a long time ago, beginning of the, the 19th uh, century. And uh, Adoniram Judson was America's first foreign missionary. And he was sent by his uh, missionary society to go out to Burma, uh, modern-day Myanmar. And uh, he was a man who had counted the cost. And this week I came across one of his published letters. And his letter was to his first wife's father asking him if he would give his daughter in marriage. Okay? So he's writing to his prospective father-in-law. Uh, why he didn't go around to see him and talk over a coffee, I don't know. But he wrote to him. And I'm glad he did because we have this particular uh, letter. And I read this this week. And I tell you what, I had a bit of a lump in my throat reading it. Because this is what he says. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and possible violent death. Can you consent to this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls and for the glory of God. See what I mean? Some years back, uh, Dan asked me if he could marry Sean. I knew the question was coming because Sean told Julie. <laughs> and Julie told me, under strict orders, to go easy on him. 
So he rather asked, nervously asked me the big question, and I said, well, I'll think about it, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and I've not given him an answer yet, but there we go. When I read Adoniram Judson's letter to his prospective father-in-law, I thought to myself, if I had received such a letter by Dan, I think I would have locked Chan away in a room and she wouldn't have seen the daylight ever again, I don't think. You know, it was bad enough that Dan was from over the border, you know, English. But to, you know, if, if, if it had been that scenario, how, how incredible was that? And when you think of it, it wasn't only Adoniram who had counted the cost in following Jesus, but his wife Anne did as well, whom he called Nancy for some reason, and her father. They left America, first for India, then Burma. They suffered terribly, losing three children. Adoniram was imprisoned for a period. Anne suffered severe illness for a number of years before dying 14 years after they were married. They counted the cost. And this kind of message I know this morning, and probably if we weren't doing a series on the tough sayings of Jesus, this is one that we would give a wide berth to. It's not an easy message. It's quite unpopular in our day when a lot of Western Christianity is, is drenched in sentiment but devoid of sacrifice. Let's move on. Jesus then said to another man, follow me. And the man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, if the disciples had been surprised at Jesus' first response, they would probably would have had angina pains on, the, on, on this second reply. Because Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But when you go, uh, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, my foot. What did he mean? The dead bury the dead. Well, I believe what Jesus was saying here was let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead because the Bible on occasions speaks about those without Christ as being spiritually dead. In effect, Jesus was saying, those who are living need your priority, not the dead. Let others, those who don't have kingdom priorities, sort out family obligations. Well, if that's what Jesus was saying, I'm sure you're all probably saying, thinking, come on, Jesus. That's a bit harsh. That's a bit harsh. Where's your compassion, Jesus? All this guy wants to do is show honour to his parents, to his father. Is that too much to ask? So what are we to make of all of this? Well, there are uh, differing viewpoints on this. I believe what's going on here is that if his father had been dead, he would have been occupied with the burial details there and then. He wouldn't have been speaking to Jesus because unlike in our country, if someone dies, it's normally a week. Sometimes it's two or three weeks before there is the burial. But in Palestine in those days, a burial would take place even on the same day as death. And uh, if his father had already died, I can't believe that uh, Jesus would have prevented him from fulfilling the family duties. When Julian and I went to uh, Malawi a, couple, a few years back now, and um, one night um, we just heard all this wailing which was coming from the next village, and we'd heard that um, 
uh, a lady from the village with some young children she'd got uh, knocked down on the road killed that day and the whole village were out wailing but it was the following morning you know less than 24 hours later that uh, she was buried and this is a kind of situation that you would have found as well in Palestine in Jesus day okay then you may be asking well if that's the case why did this guy say that he needed to bury his father if his father wasn't dead he was probably saying that once he had fulfilled the duty that every son in that culture had to administrate the burial of their parents then he would be free to travel the world then he would be free to move away from Palestine he wouldn't be a dishonorable son so basically what this guy I believe was doing was procrastinating putting off for some future time what he should have been doing now somebody put the little verse together it says procrastination is my sin it brings me naught but sorrow I know that I should stop it in fact I will tomorrow <laughs> you see the challenge from Jesus is, is get your priorities sorted don't put off till tomorrow what the Lord has commanded you to do today seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you carpe diem seize the day give the Lord your today for that's all that you've got guaranteed you might be in heaven tomorrow what a thought what a thought don't let other things get in the way of proclaiming the kingdom you see how often have we said or perhaps thought when I have finished my studies then when the kids grow up then when I get that promotion then when I change my job then when I get the house painted then when I move home then when I get the garden in shape then 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 and you can fill in your own blanks with that but procrastination often dresses itself up as common sense in 1983 Julie and I felt a deep sense of calling that we should leave Swansea to give up my jobs and for us to uh, go into full-time uh, Christian work and first uh, first of all be trained for three years and uh, we prayed over it and we discussed this issue for many months and to tell you the truth it didn't make a huge amount of sense to us in human terms it certainly wasn't good timing we just purchased our first home we had one young child there was another one on the way I'd finished my exams promotion was just around the corner we went to college with no security no finances what were we to live on we had two rooms for four of us which became five of us and after months of uh, heart searching we came to the conclusion that we have to do this now otherwise we were more likely to lose the joy in serving Jesus because in fact we were being disobedient rather than obedient and joy is always found in obedience I'm so glad that we obeyed the blessings have been far greater than any sacrifice and the Lord has given us a hundred times more than he has ever requested from us the opportunity to share Jesus with others to see lives being changed the excitement of the adventure 
And I'm so glad that Julie and I did not procrastinate, that we didn't say, although we were tempted, there is a better time. There is a time which will be more conducive, perhaps when the children have grown up. Because I believe that if we had procrastinated at that moment, we would never have chosen to be obedient. Because, looking back, there has never been a right time since then, in human the sense. There has never been a right time since then. If this first guy was uh, making his decision too quickly without counting a cost, the second guy appears to be putting off his decision to follow Jesus. And I've met many people, and there may be, you might be one of those people today that fits in one of those camps. Either it's a sort of a, a quick, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, without really truly understanding what it means to follow Jesus. Or secondly, perhaps that procrastination, putting off to tomorrow. Someone once said, the tragedy of life is not that it ends so soon, but that we wait too so long to begin it. Wow, that's, that is some saying, isn't it? Isn't that right? The tragedy of life is not that it ends so soon, but that we wait so long to begin it. Okay. Let's move on. Potential follower number three. And Jesus says to this man, uh, sorry, um, Jesus asks him to follow him. And the man says, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, you might think that surely wasn't uh, too much to ask. This person said that he would follow Jesus. It seemed only the natural, compassionate thing to go back and uh, say farewell to his family. Come on, Jesus. You know, surely that is a, a reasonable, a compassionate request even commendable. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Whilst at face value and to us, it appears that this man is making a, a reasonable request. Jesus saw something in him. Jesus has the ability in, that we don't have. And with, as it were, his x-ray eyes, he saw very much into this man's heart and motives and attitude. And Jesus knew that with this guy, there would always be an excuse. I will follow you, but... And if it was not saying goodbye to his family, it would be something else. And Jesus then sets down a, a principle that every farmer would understand. And Jesus says, you can't plough straight if you're looking behind you all the time. Because you go all over the place. And if you want to plough a straight furrow, you must keep the plough lined up by fixing it on an object ahead and aiming towards it. I know these things. <laughs> That's obvious, isn't it? And who is that one? The writer of the Hebrews said to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's a great story in the Old Testament which may help us understand this a little bit more. Uh, the, the great prophet, great man of God, Elijah, that one day he went up to 
um, Elisha, the, his, his successor, and he put his cloak around him, which was as much to say, you are going to be my successor. And Elisha at the time was plowing fields with 12 yoke of oxen. And uh, he asked Elijah if he could go back and say farewell to his parents. Elijah seemed to have no problem with him doing that. And he, he said farewell. And then what he did next was that he slaughtered his 24 oxen and burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat. And the servants had a great party. Very, very key in understanding that story. Elisha had burned the plowing equipment and slaughtered the oxen. In other words, for him, there was no way back to his former way. And with Jesus, what Jesus is saying here, that we, as we follow him, need to have that singleness of heart. No turning back. I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. I think that probably sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? I will follow you, Lord, but... And then we put our conditions in. Lord, I'll follow you, but don't expect me to share my faith with anyone. I would find that embarrassing. Lord, I would follow you, but don't ask me to love anyone I can't see eye to eye with or forgive anyone who has hurt me. I will follow you, Lord, but as long as I can attend church, maybe when I will want to attend church twice a year. I will follow you, Lord, but what's mine is mine. Don't ever expect me to share my wealth with anyone else. You see, the Lord doesn't know anything at all about conditional discipleship, and Christianity is always on his terms, but never on ours. And the six verses that we are studying this morning are really hard sayings. But could it be that the teaching that we are hearing this morning sounds hard, because we have slipped so far from New Testament standards. And the standard of being a true Christian is what Jesus taught, not what we have become used to. Someone once put it like this. Much of Western Christianity has become so subnormal that the normal seems abnormal. Much of Western Christianity has become so subnormal that the normal seems abnormal. What a thought. Okay, this morning we've observed three would-be followers of Jesus. To the first, Jesus says, count the cost because there's always a cost in following me. To the second, Jesus said, don't procrastinate. As today is your day to follow me, sort out your priorities, first thing first. And to the third, Jesus says, don't look back. Follow me on my terms, not on yours. Don't add conditions. Choose obedience. Always choose obedience because obedience is the way of great blessing. I'm going to pray now. And just before I pray, I'm going to put the words of a, a song that has challenged me many, many times over many years. We're not going to sing it, but I just want to put it on screen, which has been very much the prayer of my heart, and I'm sure has been the prayer of your hearts as well. It's a song of Matt Redman. Show me the way of the cross once again, denying myself for the love 
that I've gained. Everything's you now. Everything's changed. It's time you had my whole life. You can have it all. I've given like a beggar but lived like the rich and crafted myself a more comfortable cross. Yet what I am called to is deeper than this. It's time you had my whole life. You can have it all. Jesus, have it all. Let's pray.